you know, fuzzy, woo type thing that really doesn't have much connection with uh, reality, but it's a very, very practical, uh, wonderfully applicable section of the Word of God. Uh, we'll read it as we go along, but uh, let me just say at the outset that um, many Christians, I think when they, when they think about the armor of God here in this section, they get the idea that uh, you know, it's only really needed for the battle. Well, if, if what they mean by that is that we only wear it sometimes, like when we're in great difficulty or great temptation or attempting great things for God, then they're wrong. Because the spiritual warfare never stops. For the believer, if you're a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the battle, the war began the moment you were saved, and it will continue until you go to be with Jesus. And it will not stop. Uh, there is an expression, there are a few expressions in the world that are true, but this one is, the devil never sleeps. As long as I'm subject to temptation, as long as I have to make decisions, as long as I have to interact with my family, friends, and acquaintances, as long as I think, speak, or act, this side of heaven, then I will need to have the armor of God on, and that's all the time. When I take it off, and yes, we do that, unfortunately, then that list I just read, I will yield to temptation and sin. It's that simple. I will make poor, ungodly decisions. My relationship with others will be unchristlike. My thoughts, my speech, and my actions will be dishonoring to God. So, yes, it is true uh, that the armor of God is only needed for the battle, but the battle is all the time. So let's make that clear at the outset. This is not some, uh, you know, I might need this sometime, sort of a section of the Word of God. This is true all the time. So let's begin. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. He begins, I want to emphasize this, he's addressing believers here. The armor of God is for Christians. Did you know that? The armor of God is, is meaningless for an unsafe person. The unsafe person cannot put on the armor of God because they don't have it. And they have no access to it. He's saying, my brethren, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is for you. And, and, and we need to think about that. We have a marvelous privilege, brothers and sisters, and responsibility to do battle in the spiritual realm. You realize that? That's Hollywood stuff, man. But it's true. That's incredible that you and I can actually have an effect in spiritual places. Think about that. Isn't that incredible? An unsaved person can't do that. Forget Hollywood pictures. They, they're powerless. Look back here at chapter 2 in the same book. Just listen to this. This is a description of us as believers before we're saved, and it's a description of anyone who doesn't know Christ. Ephesians 2. Uh, verse 1, And you he made alive, talking about Christians who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. 
Do you understand that? It says, before we came to Christ, we walked, you know, exactly the way the devil wanted us to walk. That's what that's saying. According to the prince of the power of the air. That's how we walked. That's how we lived our lives. We were absolutely powerless to do anything spiritual. Forget all this Hollywood stuff. Hollywood doesn't even know what the spiritual realm is. We had no concept of spiritual truth. We did not know God. As it goes on to say later, we were without God, without hope. And that's the truth. God says in 1 John 5 that the whole world lies in the sway of the wicked one. Okay? The devil rules this world, man. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, whether you like it or not, you're under his power. And you have no power to break that, that strong chain. But Jesus does. He'll break those chains if you come to him. So this is meant for you and me, brother and sister, uh, in fighting the spiritual warfare. So he says, finally, brethren, back to Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. It's good that he introduces this section by emphasizing that though we wear the armor and use the armor in, in part, the actual power and the strength is not ours. Do you understand the distinction? You know, uh, and, uh, by the way, the picture throughout this whole thing is going to be a Roman soldier with a sword and a helmet and breastplate and all that stuff. And when a Roman soldier had on his garb, his strength was his own. He had to rely on himself to use that stuff. Well, there's a big difference for you and me, praise God. The strength, the power, comes from God. Whether it's exercising faith or using the Word of God, as we're going to see, or practical righteousness, the strength, anything that makes anything happen is going to come from God. So he wants to make that clear at the outset. It's not our strength that makes things happen. doesn't mean we don't have responsibilities. You're going to see we have very strong responsibility here. But the point is, we're just as strong in ourselves as we were as unsaved people when it comes to spiritual things. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. That's right. Nothing. That's a pretty all-inclusive word, isn't it? He's right. We, forget it. You can't do anything. I can't do anything when it comes to either resisting set temptation, sharing the gospel, being effective in the life of, of other people, having godly relationships, anything. Apart from Jesus, I'm totally powerless. But with him, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. There's a similar passage in 2 Corinthians that stresses that the, the strength is from God. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. There it is again. Mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And again, as I read that, I hope you have the same uh, amazement and joy and excitement as I do that we can have an effect in the spiritual realm, that we can see things done for God. Isn't that great? Man, what a privilege. Okay, here it is, a command. This is, this is something you and I must do. Verse 11, put on. There it is. The whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. <clears throat> put on. 
It's, it's something that we must do. It's not there unless we put it on. And if I don't put on my armor, and we're going to see what it is, I don't have it on. It's a command that must be obeyed to be effective. I must do it. And if I, uh, plainly, if I don't have on the armor of God, I'm going to be defeated. It's that simple. Now, um, I want to stress here, it says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. That you there, it's unfortunate, most of you here have probably taken a foreign language in school or, or maybe even speak a foreign language, foreign, another language beside English. You know, in most other languages, um, there are two words for you. You know that, right? You know, there's one for the singular form of you and there's one for plural. When you say you and you mean one person, like in French, you use the word tu. And if you're talking to you, more than one person, you say vous. They're totally different words. And in our language, we just have the word you, which is unfortunate because we miss distinctions sometimes in the scripture. Because in the Greek, uh, there are two words for you. Well, I'm saying that because here the word for you and throughout this passage is plural. Why am I making such a big deal about that? Because when we read this section and we study it on, on the armor of God, I think we get the picture of one lone Christian out there, you know, armed to the hilt with his sword, just kind of, you know, whew, slaying the dragon or something all by himself. That's not the picture in this passage at all. It's true we are individually responsible for putting on the armor of God. Yes, I can't do it for you and you can't do it for me. But the battle is pictured as being fought as a body, corporately. He's addressing a church. And all the verbs and all the pronouns in here are plural. That's very important. We have each other in the battle to support one another, to stand alongside, to encourage, to exhort, and do all the uh, each others that are in the New Testament, exhorting one another, praying for one another, and so on. So don't get the picture now as we go through this, you know, that you're kind of all by yourself out there, you know, surrounded on all sides, and you're just kind of duking it out all by yourself. There, the picture is that we're in this together. You, plural, may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Um, I think many of you know, but I think some of you don't. There's a wonderful three-point outline. It's great. You know, preachers love three-point outlines. I don't know why. In fact, the classic famous outline for a sermon is supposed to be three main points, and under each point, three sub-points. I don't know why. That's just the magic number. Uh, and there's a wonderful natural three-point outline for the book of Ephesians based on the verbs that are in it. And they are sit, walk, stand. They occur in that order in the book. And like many of, other, uh, of the other of Paul's epistles, it begins with us sitting. And not that we're lazy, but if you remember in the beginning chapters, he's talking about our position in Christ. Wonderful chapters about our exalted position. And first he says that Christ is seated uh, in the heavenlies after his victory for us. And then it goes on to say that we are seated in him in the heavenlies. And that's like the first three chapters of the book. Then uh, starting in chapter 4 and into chapter 6, the, the word walk occurs like uh, half a dozen times. He begins chapter uh, 4 with it and, and all the way through up to the section talking about our daily now that you, you know what your position is in Christ, you're, you're, you're sitting, so to speak. Now let's talk about going out and, and living day to day, your walk. And here in this section, the key verb is stand. You see it here in verse 11. 
Uh, it's again in verse 13 twice. The word, the word withstand in some of your translations has the same word in it. And again in verse uh, 14, stand therefore. Sit, walk, stand. Yeah, and it's not the idea that we're, we're inactive, but the idea that we're standing fast. You see, there's a battle going on. And he's saying, don't go back, don't fall back, don't retreat. Stand there and fight. In fact, and win. Fight the good fight. Stand. Don't give ground. That's the idea. Stand against the wiles, I think it may say schemes, of the devil. That's incredible. You know, the devil has plans. Think about that. He has plans. He, he thinks up things. He gives orders. We're going to see the uh, hierarchy here in verse 12. He gives orders. He wants things to happen according to what he wants. Right now, he's engaged in something throughout the world through his legions of uh, demons. But he has plans. He has schemes. You know, we can't just sit passively by or we're going to fall victim. Well, here's the scene of the battle. A picture of our enemy in verse 12. Well, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It'd be easy if we could see him, wouldn't it? But we can't. But against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's it. Before we came to Christ, we were in the devil's hip pocket. All the world lies in the wicked one, lies in the sway of the wicked one. Now that we have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son, we're his arch enemy. And he does everything he can. Now, not necessarily personally, remember that. I, every time a temptation comes or uh, something evil seems to be happening, you know, it's not necessarily from the devil himself. Remember, he's a finite being. He's in one place at one time. He's not God. But acting through uh, his demons, he has influence throughout the world. And we encounter him either personally or through his agents every day. So the, this is the enemy. Look at it, so to speak. We were once enemies of God. Think of that. We were on the, I can say, we were on these guys' side. We were on their side. That's where we were. Cooperating with them in denying God, in uh, loving the world, in uh, just dismissing God from his own creation. That's where we were before on their side. But now, through God's grace, praise God, we can glorify God. You know, We can do things for God in his strength and with his armor. Uh, verse 13. Finally, this is the last uh, word of introduction before we get into the actual pieces of armor. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, there it is again, to stand. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. These are strong words of encouragement. You know. Uh, now, the, the word there that's translated whole armor, it's going to appear again, uh, is... The word that we get, the word panoply from, you ever heard that word before? It's, it's, it's used to describe a whole array of uh, armor and weapons. Like when the Roman soldier had all of his stuff laid out, it was called his panoply. So this doesn't mean the whole armor and the idea that make sure you get all of it, but it's stressing the idea that it's all there, that there's nothing missing, that God didn't leave out something that we needed. 
It's the whole armor. It's complete. Isn't that great? You know? We have all things pertaining to life and godliness from God. He didn't leave something out. Okay. Well, we'll just have time to look at three of the articles this week. And not surprisingly, there are seven. How many times have we heard that number lately? Huh? We saw it over the book of Revelation, didn't we? And there are seven uh, pieces of equipment or items, whatever you want to call them, in the armor of God. And we're going to look at the first three this week. Lord willing, we'll look at the last four next week. There are two of them introduced here in verse 14. Stand, therefore. Stand. There it is again. A stand, therefore. Having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So here's the first article. We need to pay attention now. We were told that we need to put on the armor of God. Well, let's find out what it is so we can know how to put it on. And the first one is the girdle or the belt of truth. And the neat thing is God inspired Paul to describe the armor piece by piece with each thing that we put on corresponding to something that a soldier would wear. And it's not arbitrary. Each one is in a certain place and corresponds to something in the real physical world because of something about it. And here, truth, which is what he says we need to put on, is like a belt. That's interesting. First of all, uh, it's, it's a belt or a girdle. It's, not, it's neither a weapon, nor is it exactly what you would call armor. It really doesn't protect. The belt in the uh, Roman soldier's apparel, was the thing that kind of held everything together. First thing they would do when they were going to go out into battle, they had those, you know, you've seen Hollywood, and in this case, you know, with the long robes, right? That's the way they would dress in those days. The men would reach down and take up their robes and pull them up this way so they could free their legs for movement, and then they would tuck the robe into the belt. That was step number one. Then as they put on the armor, many of the pieces would tie into that belt. It was kind of like the anchoring point. For example, the breastplate was attached to the belt. The, uh, the sword hung from the belt. So it's a marvelous picture. Girding ourselves with truth. Truth is kind of like the anchoring point. You know, uh, It applies to many of the other pieces of our armor. Well, I know you're sitting there saying, how can I put on truth? You know, what does that mean? That sounds so vague. It's really very practical, and it's very specific. We're going to look at four areas in the way we put on truth. It's going to deal with four areas of our lives. The first is attitude. The second is our speech. The third is our motives. And the fourth is our values. And we've either put on truth, or we don't have it on in those four areas. First of all, in our attitude, <clears throat> truth is the opposite of deceit and hypocrisy. We can put on a facade of spirituality, can't we? You know, the spiritual mask. Look how spiritual I am. We can, we can pretend that we're having a great time with God, you know, having great time in the Word, and we're suffering great defeat, in fact, maybe living in sin. But people would not know it because we can put on a front. Hypocrisy. You see, we've all been guilty of that in one way or another, in, in small or greater measure. But you see, putting on the belt of truth means not doing that. It means being honest, being sincere with God first and with others. It's simply the opposite of hypocrisy. 
truth. And if, and if I'm going around uh, wearing a mask, pretending I'm someone I'm not, then I'm going to lose the battle. And, and the devil's going to use that. And, he, and I've seen him use things like that to defeat not only individuals, but a whole assembly sometimes. Not pretending. It's true sincerity. The demons know when we haven't got on the girdle of truth. They see it. You know, we can fool other people, but they see it. Certainly God knows it, but the demons do too. And unfortunately, the people that need to be fooled or the individuals that need to be fooled are not fooled by it. And if, I've, and if I'm not wearing the girdle of truth when it comes to my attitude, my life, I'm, I'm open for defeat, for great sin. Uh, not having on the girdle of truth, this idea of hypocrisy, of, of uh, falseness, is coupled with the idea of pride. God says in First uh, Corinthians, let no man think more highly of himself than he ought. False pride. Nothing false, you see. Truth is, if, uh, if the hypocrisy and the lies that are associated uh, with not having on the truth, then truth is associated with humility as well. I'm honest about who I am. You know? The second area in our lives where we need to put on the, uh, the belt of truth is in our speech. And the opposite of truth in this case is simply lies. Now, you know, I don't think anybody here is just an out-and-out chronic liar. But nevertheless, as Christians, we can lie. Uh, if, if we couldn't, then uh, we wouldn't have the command just a, a chapter before. In fact, he says it twice. For, uh, chapter 15, he says, speak the truth. Chapter 4, verse 15, speak the truth in love. In uh, verse 25, chapter 4, speak, each lady should speak truth with his neighbor. Put aside lying. You ever exaggerated? That's lying. It's not the truth. Jesus didn't exaggerate. Everything he said was perfectly true. False praise. Flattery. Broken promises. We could go on and on. We have to be careful in our speech. Put on truth. Speak the truth in love. If we don't, then we permit the devil to get a foothold. But if we do... If we have on the girdle of truth, we can do things for God. We'll walk victoriously. You can know, you know it. I know it. I know what I have on the girdle of truth, don't you? You know? I, I can tell when it slipped off. And I, and, I, and I can feel, I can feel like, uh-oh, you know, I'm wide open right now. But when I've got on that girdle of truth, when I know I'm being honest and sincere with God and men, I, I, I feel strong in that area, you know? Third area is our motives. If we have on the belt of truth, it means we have no ulterior motives. We don't have self-interest at the front. The opposite of having on the belt of truth when it comes to motives is, is that we use people to gain influence, maybe, for personal profit or pleasure. We, we can manipulate people. We can use... Jesus never did that. You know, Jesus never used people. Uh, you want to read some strong sections about using people, read the sections about false teachers in Second Peter and Jude. That's what they do. They use people for their own ends. 
But to have on the belt of truth is to have a sincere care for others. A sincere care from a heart of true love. Truth. Having on the belt of truth. The Lord Jesus had it on all the time. Listen to these words. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Did Jesus serve? You know, and it was from a sincere heart. He wasn't just going through emotions. He did it because he loved us. His heart was always reaching out. What can I do? How can I help? It's always like that. It was never for himself. Ever. What a wonderful heart. Pure, pure motives. Several times when you read the epistles of Paul, Paul talks about the people that work with him. And uh, it's, it, in a way, it's kind of sad. There are a couple of times where he indicates that he's having a hard time finding someone that uh, he can rely on. Uh, toward the end of 2 Timothy, he said, all have forsaken me. Kind of a shame. And uh, in, in um, Philippians, in talking about Timothy, Paul says this. He says, I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. That's the heart. He, he says, for all seek their own. He's talking about the others. They all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Other men that he could have sent to the Philippians, he would not have felt good about sending them because he was afraid that they would have, you know, ulterior motives. They, it, would be, it could be some, something just as simple as, you know, some brother going there thinking, wow, here I am, I'm sent by Paul the Apostle to you guys. Look how great I am. Right? Subtle, but the guy's going to be useless for God. God's not going to use a guy like that. Look at me, you know. I am sent to the church to take care of them. Wow, I am a shepherd. I am a counselor of God. Ain't I great? Devil's going to use that guy. God's not going to use him. He doesn't know it, but his belt's dropped down around his feet. It's a sincere, from the heart, love that we need to have if God's going to use us, if we're going to be effective for Him, if we're going to be able to walk day to day in a Christ-like way. And if we're true in our motives, if we really are acting from a sincere, honest love for others, Boy, we're going to be used by God in a great way. You want that? Boy, I do. You know, of all the things you could do in the world, could you think of something better? I can't. Well, the fourth area of putting on this, this girdle, this belt of truth, is in our values. And of course, as I said, there, there's connection between the uh, elements of the armor. And here, we begin to overlap a little bit with the sword of the Spirit, which we're going to look at, at later, because certainly uh, the key source for truth is right here. Right? So putting on the belt of truth certainly uh, means that our values that come from this book that we've, um, we're using the Word of God. And in this sense, putting on uh, the girdle of truth is the opposite of the way the world sees things. If I have the values of the Word of God, then I'm, I'm going to be 180 degrees from the world. And I'm going to stand out. I just think of one, one lie that uh, the world is eagerly adopting 
And it is the source of so many other lies that are contrary to truth in the world. That one lie is evolution. That's, that's a big lie. And people think about it, well, that's a scientific lie. Well, it's true, but that's only the beginning. There are so many consequences that come out of accepting the lie of evolution. People don't realize it. To begin with, put yourself in the mindset of someone who believes evolution. What's the meaning of life? Tell me. Well, okay, self-gratification, yeah. The point is, it's whatever you make it. If we're here as a result of random processes, if we're accidents, there is no meaning to life. Don't you understand that? People in the world don't understand that. There is absolutely no basis for moral living at all if evolution is true. There's no, I, I, there's no reason for my being here. I'm an accident. That's serious stuff. Now the thing is, most people don't want their minds to go down these, these trails. And so they never think about it. But there are some extreme evolutionists who actually follow evolution to its logical conclusions and teach them. They're kind of, you know, outsiders because people don't want to hear it. But it's true. It's very true. There is no purpose to life. My life is pointless. One of the uh, ch children of evolution is materialism. It's the, you see, evolution assumes all there is is the physical universe. I'm just a bunch of molecules. Uh, 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 what, you know, you just see a physical thing. And when this physical thing stops existing, I'm gone. This is all there is to me. I'm just a big, walking package of chemistry. Isn't that pathetic? But it's true. That, that's the logical conclusion of evolution. Just, just because I think I'm a higher form of life, I'm still just the same as an amoeba or less. We're both just packages of chemistry. That's all. You see, and so the idea is that there is, this physical is all there is. There is no spiritual. There is no metaphysical. Yet God says just the opposite. Second Corinthians. He con contrasts the, the spiritual with the physical and he says the unseen is that which is eternal, which is the most important. He says the physical is just transitory. It's temporary. And the world is out there living their lives, couching their hopes on just the physical. It's, it's pointless. It goes nowhere. And we as believers have to be careful about falling into that, don't we? Because we are still very much physical beings. But now God has made alive that spiritual part of us. And that's what we need to keep focused on. And having on the belt of truth will keep us in that frame of mind. We could go on. You know, evolution, if you want to look for a law, with the weak and the infirm. And I'm sorry, but there are extreme evolutions who actually teach that. Euthanasia. But it, it makes sense. Now, most people don't want to think about that, but if you're going to be brutally honest, if evolution really is the way things are, that's what we should be doing. Let's help the process along. Now, you say, that's crazy. No, it's not. If evolution is true and the, and the principles that supposedly make it work, 
then the way we got here in the first place is by survival of the fittest. And the weak and the infirm are laid aside. You know, they're useless. They're uh, abnormalities in the scheme of things. It, God's word is so opposite from that. Imagine every, each individual human soul cost the precious Son of God. He loves, He is a person, He is God, and He loves us, and He gave Himself for every one of us. What a difference. And as uh, Matt said, you can go ahead and pick at whatever meaning of life you want, whatever purpose for living you want. Greed, pleasure-seeking, it's perfectly justified. You know, whatever I want, me first. Isn't that the opposite of the Word of God? You see, if I gird myself with truth, if I'm living according to God's ways, I'm going to be so different from the world. I'm going to see things differently. The simplest believer who simply trusts the Word of God is wiser than the wisest man in the world. You know that? That's incredible, isn't it? God can take the simplest, untaught man or woman and dwell them with the Holy Spirit, give them the Word of God, and they put all the great thinkers of the world to shame. You think of all the philosophers and all their great writings. You can read them, you won't understand half of them. Talking about why we're here, what's God, what's the meaning of life, and so on. With no answers. You take the simplest believer, ask him, why am I here? He can tell you, you're here to know God, to love him, and to serve him. And the only way you can do that is to come to him through Jesus Christ. Profoundest words anyone can say. That's truth. That is true. And all this other stuff we've been talking is a bunch of nonsense. It's the lie of the devil. But I'll tell you, the whole world is lying in it right now. Gobbles it up, loves it. You know why? Because the other consequence is, we can do without God. That's probably the, the greatest, most tragic consequence of the lie of evolution. We don't need God. God. In fact, God's not there, you see. One lie, and look at its offspring. And when I gird myself with truth, thank God it's so wonderful to acknowledge that God created all things, isn't it? Romans, it's a heartfelt, I believe, complaint from God. Neither did they give thanks. You know, talking about creation. It's wonderful to give thanks to him now, isn't it? For his goodness, you know. So, girding myself, listen to how opposite this. There's the first a pillar of truth that's going to stand out so much in the world. God created all things. Yeah. And it didn't take him a billion years to do it. He did it in six days. Just like the Bible says. Beginning and end. Amen? But then beyond that, the meaning of life. Yes, there is a purpose. To know him. Isn't that great that we can do that? That's why I was created. The answer to the greatest questions that have been asked by philosophers who never could answer it. There is a spiritual realm. In fact, that's what makes me, me. This, this isn't me, this body that just was sick last week. You know, it's going to perish. It's perishing already. My outward man is decaying, but my inward man is being renewed day by day. You are not your body, but you are made in the image of God. And what makes you, you, is your spirit, the part of you that's like God, the part of you that makes you, you, the part of you through which you know God. 
And it's the spiritual that's, that's the most important. We can only know this because we have God's Word. And there are such things as right and wrong and good and evil. Yes, there are values because God says so. It's, it's incredible when you think about it. We can, we can answer all the great questions. The nature of God, the nature of man, sin, judgment, salvation. Truth. That's not a small thing, brothers and sisters, to have this. I'll tell you, we're, we're a dinky minority and we have the truth. And we need to gird ourselves with it and speak out and stand up for the truth. So, this is a, this is a wonderful, specific command put on. Gird yourself with the belt of truth. Do you have it on? Just check yourself in your attitudes. Are you uh, honest, sincere right now in, in your dealings with people? Or are you playing the hypocrite? Then confess it and put that, put that belt back on again. Your speech, how's your speech? That's the area that tripped up even Isaiah. You know? let's, let's speak the truth in love. As, as we do these things, you see, first of all, we're invulnerable to the devil. Think of that. He can't get us. But secondly, we can be used by God. Thirdly, our motives. Examine your motives. Look at your heart. And why you do things and how you do things for others and for God. Is it pure? Empty of self. And finally, your values. Examine your life. What are, are your values the values of the world or the values of the Word of God? If someone were to look at your life, would they see you with the girdle of truth on? Okay. Next item of the armor is having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Breastplate, you know, it's that big piece of metal that goes here. It protects your vitals. If you got wounded in the stomach or the heart, it's fatal, usually, in those days. So it was a key piece of armor for protection. See, this is different from the belt now. Here, the primary purpose of this thing called righteousness, we're going to talk about it, is protection for me. Just like we're going to see the shield later. Now, let's, let's stress here, particularly for you young believers... He is not talking about the righteousness that you have in Christ. He's not talking about our positional righteousness. The righteousness that you receive when you come to Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That happened the moment you were saved. It can never be altered. Isn't that great? And it's what fits you for heaven. You have right now the righteousness of God. And, uh, you know, don't, don't say, well, wow, that's probably overkill. No, it's not, because anything short of it won't qualify you for heaven. It must be the righteousness of God. And if you have Christ, then in Him you have the righteousness of God. But, practically, day to day, if I sin, and until I make it right, I'm experiencing unrighteousness, practically. It doesn't alter my position in Christ. If I were to die without making that sin right, I still go to heaven. But practically in my walk, I'm hamstrung. I'm disabled, you see. We need to put on the breastplate of righteousness. That is, we need to practice righteousness. It's that simple. If I refuse to confess or repent of my sin, I'm wide open for attack. 
You know that. Can't you sense it? I can. When I got sin in my life, I get scared. I don't know about you. And I'll sit there in a torment, you know. And I know I should make this right, but I don't want it right now, you know. And until I do, I'm in a dangerous place. And the devil knows it. He sees it. And invariably, if I delay long enough, something's going to happen. You see, I got that breastplate off. You don't see it, but he does. And it's so obvious to our enemies, we saw in verse 12, it's as if you'd see a guy out in the battle without his breastplate on. It'd be so obvious. they go, well, look at that guy over there. You know, twang. He's dead. Well, it's that way when we don't have our breastplate of righteousness. You know, we're entertaining sin. We've got a grievance against a brother or sister and we refuse to make it right. We don't want to admit we're wrong. We could go on and on. Some secret sin. Our breastplate is off. It's either on or it's off. There's no halfway. You know, it's not kind of hanging loose or something. And if I have unconfessed sin in my life, my breastplate is off. And I'm wide open. It's, it's, it has terrible consequences. Psalm 66. If I regard iniquity in my heart, what? The Lord will not hear me. You know that? That's talking about believers. That's not just Old Testament saints. If I regard, if I got regard, it means look at, right? You know, if I can see sin inside here and I don't do anything about it, the Lord will not hear me. Now, of course, God hears everything, but the point is he's not going to listen. I can pray all I want as a believer, but if I've got sin that I haven't dealt with, God says, you go make that right before you come to me. I don't want to hear you. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. How, how did this section begin? How are we going to be effective in this battle? It said, be strong in the Lord and in His might. I'm not going to be able to, strong, be able to be strong in the Lord when He's not even listening to me. He's waiting for me to take care of that sin and put that breastplate of righteousness back on. I can attend meetings, I can pray, I can read my Bible, but I'm going to be barren, fruitless, and powerless. We need to, as 1 John says, walk in the light as He is in the light. And that's not a once and for all thing, that's every day. Walk in the light. Great, great picture, isn't it? It's like I'm out here, you know, where everybody can see me. Uh, nothing hidden. As Paul says, I have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. That's the way to be. And if we walk in the light as He is in the light, then the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. And we have fellowship with one another. And we have fellowship with the Father. And we have on that breastplate of righteousness. Psalm 51. Most of you know it. It's a wonderful psalm of confession written by David. You know how it ends. When he has appealed to God, he has laid his sin out there. He, I hate it, he says. He says, against thee and thee only have I sinned. He sees how ugly it is. Then he pleads for forgiveness. He pleads for, for cleansing. And he knows God is going to give it to him. And on the basis of that, having confessed his sin and turned from it, then and not until then, does he say, then sinners will be converted to you and I will teach transgressors thy ways. Then it'll happen. Then I'll be effective for you. Then once again, I can be useful for you, God. When my sin has been forgiven, I put it away and you have cleansed me from it. Then sinners will be converted. I'll be able to speak about Jesus again. Don't you feel like your lips are sealed when you've got sin in your life? 
and talking to others about Jesus? Sure. Nothing worse than someone coming up, you know, in need. And you need to open your Bible, pray with them, talk to them about the Lord, and you feel like, man, I can't do this right now. I need to go make myself right with God. You see. Then sinners will be converted to thee. Then I shall teach transgressors thy ways. Not until then. But when I'm at that point, praise God, I can be used by him. If I don't have on my breastplate of righteousness, I'm going to be a primary target, like that guy out in the battle. Like the man in Proverbs, who has no control over his spirit, says he's like a city that is broken down and without walls, defenseless, wide open. But with it on, I can engage in the battle, in the heat of it, in the thick of the fray, with that expression that's so popular today, no fear, without fear. Blameless. That's what that word means. You see it in the New Testament. That's what blameless means. It means right now in my life, there's nothing the enemy can, can point at me, you know? Like they do with politicians. There's nothing, they, some secret, they can go dig up and hold it against me. I'm right with God and with men. I got that breastplate on. I'm blameless. Okay, the third item is uh, verse 15. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. This is amazing when you think about it. Here we are in the middle of a battle and it says we're carrying a message of peace. You see, the reason is because our enemies are trying to keep us from delivering it. The, the gospel here is, is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the message of how we can be saved. Again, think about this, brothers and sisters, of, of the privilege and the responsibility we have. We talked about truth. How many people in the world can lead someone else to God? If you, if you counted the number of people in the world who could do that, who could sit down with the Word of God with someone in great need who's crying out for God, maybe they're on their deathbed, how many people could sit down with that individual and lead them to Christ? Not many. The laborers are few, Jesus said. Look upon yourself that way. I'll tell you. We're artisans, brothers and sisters. We're craftsmen. We are a rare breed. And we have in these earthen vessels a message that the world needs to hear, that only we can share. And I love the way he puts it. Of all the places on the uh, area of the armor he could have chosen, it's the shoes. He says, have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Well, there's a couple of words I want to focus on. He didn't just say, put on the gospel of peace. He said the preparation. Did you notice that? He didn't say that with the other ones. But when it came to the gospel, he said, have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Why? It indicates that we need to get ready beforehand. Prepared. Did you know that you need to study? And in fact, it would be good to be trained to really share the gospel with someone. Many Christians go out unprepared with what they might call the gospel, and when that moment arrives and they have to share with someone about Jesus, somebody asks that magic question, you know, what must I do to be saved? Out comes a string of dissociated ideas and parts of verses with little or no continuity or clarity. I know, I've been there, I've heard it. They're not prepared. 1 Peter 3, we're commanded, always be ready with a reason for the hope that lies within you. 
And that doesn't just mean being a Christian. Yes, I can give my personal testimony. Praise God for that. Every Christian has a unique testimony of how they got saved. But to present the message of salvation, that thing called the gospel that Paul said he preached, that thing that he said he was not ashamed of, it's going to take some preparation to bring you and me to that point, brothers and sisters. We need to be prepared. That also means uh, being able to discern the work of God in a seeker's heart. It's not just a matter of uh, sitting down and saying words. We need to work alongside of God in, in uh, presenting the gospel. First Corinthians 3, I love that phrase. It says we're co-laborers with God. It's not you and that person. It's you. Let's begin. It's God, you and that person. God, the Holy Spirit, working hopefully in both hearts. And me being sensitive to what the Holy Spirit is doing right now. Uh, it's, a, it's a real tragedy to have someone present what they call the gospel and at best they're getting across some Bible facts, maybe persuading someone to pray a prayer. And in the worst case, they've actually made it more difficult for that person to become saved. That's serious business. This is not the mere communication of information, but a cooperative work with God the Holy Spirit requiring spiritual skill and sensitivity. Second thing I want you to notice about uh, the gospel, he says, the preparation of the gospel of peace, he says it's on our feet, it's, it's our shoes. I love that. It's, it's lovely how the gospel in the scripture is associated with the feet. More than once. In the figure of the battle, now, we've already understood we need to stand. Well, that doesn't mean we're immobile for God. And when it comes to the gospel, we've got to be ready to move out, to go. The verb associated with the, with the gospel is go. It's good to have people like the Philippian jailer who come to us and say, what must I do to be saved? But that's not the typical case. We must go to them. It's good to bring someone to church if they're willing to come and keep coming until they get saved. And that happens sometimes. But the primary way someone's going to get saved, as most of you know, because this is how you got saved, is because someone came to you, right? They went they used their feet. You know? They had their feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And praise God, they did. And they came to you. And if, uh, if it's more likely than not, it didn't happen the first time. It took several times. I see a lot of smiles when I say that. It didn't happen the first time. Going. Romans 10 has this wonderful progression. And the idea is... How are they going to hear unless you go and tell them? Listen, how then shall they call on whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Okay, stop. Preacher. We're not thinking guys, you know, with backward collars who get up with a Bible and talk to a group. The word there simply means someone who's willing to talk about Jesus. That's what the preacher is. It's you. That's the preacher there, okay? So when you read that, how shall they hear... Uh, without, put your name in there. That's who it means. And how shall they preach unless they are sent? They go, you see. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace. 
Think of the person whose feet are beautiful in your eyes that brought the gospel to you. Beautiful feet, shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Jesus said it to his disciples. His last words, go therefore, go, there it is. Use your feet and make disciples. Whether next door or over the seas, go. Okay, we've looked at the first three articles. We're, we're out of time. I hope this has been, made it maybe a little more practical for you. It's a wonderful section. I love this section of the Word of God. Let's do an equipment check. You don't have to answer me, but just think about it. Think about your own life. Maybe God's spoken to you this morning. And if so, if there's an article missing, make sure you take care of it today. The belt of truth. Examine your attitude, your speech, your motives, your values. Can you say, yeah, truth, sincerity, honesty, no hypocrisy, pure motives. The breastplate of righteousness. Is there an unconfessed sin in your life? Something you need to deal with. He exhorts us and he was laying aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us. Now we're going to change metaphors from the battle to athletics. Let us run the race that is set before us. The breastplate of righteousness. I know when I have it on. I think you do too. Is it on now? And your, your feet uh, in the shoes that are the preparation of the gospel of peace. Are you ready with the gospel right now? If you were to walk out of here, meet someone out there in the parking lot, and they said, you know, I th- you guys, I see you guys have a church in there. How do I come to know God? Are you ready to answer them? Be led by the Spirit, discern where they are, take them through the Scripture. Maybe not even then they won't get saved, but at least point them to the Savior. Let's have on the armor of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful section of your word. And we want to heed this command, very simple, put on the whole armor of God. We recognize we have a responsibility in this area. Thank you, Lord, that you've done everything else, that you've provided the armor, that it's all there for us to simply reach out and and put on. Thank you most of all, Lord, that it's your strength, your might that does the work, not us. We're clay vessels, Lord. But with you, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And we thank you for that. Help us in the battle, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.